You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. Well, I suppose we need to start looking into some news and notes. And uh, first and foremost, the injury report. Who the heck is even playing for the Green Bay Packers and I guess the Patriots? Uh, I mean, the upcoming matchup, because that matters. The only thing that matters is the grail. Thank you, Sean. Tell you what. Um, that's probably going to happen a lot today because I'm feeling weird. I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you. I'm 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 feeling weird, and I'm going to get weird with it. And anyways, here's the injury report. First of all, Jair Alexander. Pretty good news as of Wednesday that he was limited in practice. Unfortunately, did not practice on Thursday. In fact, a bunch of people showed up on the DNP list. This is what I'm going to call it. So I'm just going to sit here and say that um, they decided to hold some people out just so that. You know, we make sure they're good for Friday. I'm probably just lying, but that's what I'm going to tell myself because it's depressing. David Bakhtiari went from limited to DNP. Caleb Jones hasn't practiced all week. Mercedes Lewis also was limited Wednesday, did not practice on Thursday. However, not all bad news. Elton did not practice on Wednesday, but was limited on Thursday. A.J. Dillon was limited with a knee injury on Wednesday, but was completely fine on Thursday. Uh, John Garvin. For those interested, limited Wednesday, full participant on Thursday. And Mr. Christian Watson, who was limited on Wednesday, is a full participant on Thursday. Alan Lazard, limited and limited. So um, pretty crap news for Jair, David, and um, and Mercedes Lewis, and I guess Caleb Jones, for those keeping score. Guys, keep score. I get it, dude. I just said if you want to keep score, you can keep score. You don't have to be a freaking jerk about it. As for the New England Patriots... Yadni Kajus, I haven't heard that dude's name in a long time. Um, he was downgraded to did not participate. Also, Lawrence Guy and Mac Jones also not participating. There's been a whole... The Mac Jones thing is weird. Because there's two narratives floating around on the world stage. Um, number one, he's out, he's going to be out for a long time. Number two, he might play this week. <laughs> I don't know if the... Talk about him possibly playing is all just completely fake, smoke and mirrors, nonsense, um, or what. But those are the two things. There's there's really no in-between. He's either going to be out for a long time 
or he's he's potentially playing this week. I don't know, man. I'm just I'm quite positive he won't be playing, but I don't know. And I, and I don't care. It's not Pat Mahomes, you know, it's not Josh Allen. It's Mac Jones. Matt Care, he gave up his eye for your freedom. Maybe he did, but he still sucks at quarterback, so. Why did he give up his eye? I don't understand. Otherwise, everybody looks pretty good, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, I want to start this off with uh, one thing that I've come to learn about the New England Patriots that I think works massively in our favor. What was the number one problem that we had against the New England Patriots? I, that's that's a little vague. I mean, you could try to pause it and think about it for a minute. It, it's not going to be the right answer because there's too many answers. Let me narrow it down a little bit. Our defense did a great job, but it should have been a lot better. What was one thing that they did really well to kind of stymie our defense? The answer, Tom Brady got the ball out of his hand really fast. Right now, according to PFF, and you know everybody tracks these things differently. I'm sure there's different times for different whatever. Doesn't matter. Via PFF, fastest ball out of their hand person in the NFL is Tom Brady. 2.22 seconds. The next closest is Cooper Rush at 2.31. Aaron Rodgers is sitting at a cool 2.53, tied with Tua Tungavailoa, 26th in the NFL. Tom Brady, 33rd out of 32 teams. It complicates things because our pass rush was lethal, and Tom Brady would have been laid back on his skull numerous times if the ball hadn't come out of their hand so quickly. Devontae Wyatt had at least one sack, if not two, in his just five attempts. Quay Walker would have easily had a sack. He was milliseconds away. And Rashawn, Kenny, and Preston, the whole crew, probably Kingsley. Kingsley was at his knees at one point when the ball came out. Kingsley decided to lay off. I I promise you, there's a lot of pass rushers that would have given him a little bit more of a jolt, but he was like, "Ah, I don't want to play that game, so he didn't. But our guys were right there. Tom Brady got that ball out of his hands stupid fast. The New England Patriots don't necessarily operate that way. They don't do a whole lot of the misdirection, look over there, come over here, the things to try to slow the pass rush, quick passing game, any of that stuff. It sounds like they're telling Mac Jones, your job is to stand in shotgun, and we're going to empty the backfield, and you stand there and throw to the open guy. He has the 10th slowest release of anybody. And most of the time, the guys with really slow time to throws are guys that run around a lot, you know? I mean, you, you can crush your average by pulling a Kyler Murray and running around in the backfield for 30 seconds. Justin Fields' time to throw is worst in the NFL at 3.33. Then you got Lamar, you got Trey Lance, you got Jalen Hurts. A lot of these guys are runners. Justin Herbert, Russell Wilson. The only guys that are kind of pocket passers that have really slow release times are Daniel Jones and Mac Jones. No disrespect to Danny and Mac for their rushing abilities. But uh, the point is, I don't think, because there's a difference. There's a difference between standing in the pocket way too long holding the ball and scrambling around trying to make a play because you got the wheels, because it, it amounts to the same thing, but it means different things, if any of that makes sense. Beyond that, looking at play action, things like misdirection. Mac Jones and the New England Patriots have run a play action play nine times in three games. For context, That is the lowest of any quarterback that's played in three games. In fact, Jimmy Garoppolo has run 
10 play action plays in his limited time playing football. Trey Lance ran seven in the one game that he played, just two less than Mac Jones did in three games. They don't do it. The point I'm making is that I believe our pass rush is going to have a much better time teeing off on Mac Jones. He doesn't have the mobility of Justin Fields. He doesn't have the quick release of Tom Brady. And there isn't a whole lot of misdirection type of things that cause you to freeze. A play action can do a lot of things. If you're an edge rusher and you see him go to hand off, are you going to try to swim inside to get the sack? You can't. You got to hold the edge. So you can, I mean, granted, Rashawn is going to try to hold the edge and push that edge directly into the quarterback, but it causes hesitation. But if you're standing in the backfield in shotgun, and as soon as the ball's snapped, that, you know, running back either stays into block or goes and runs into the flat, and your name is Rashawn Gary, all you see in front of you is death. Oh, hello, phone call. Hold on. Sorry about that, I'm back. We're back. We're back in action. What the heck are we talking about? Oh, that's right. Rashawn Gary brings death. I looked into your future and I saw death. That was Rashawn Gary. He just called in and he said that. It's not Lord of the Rings. What are you talking about? So that's, that's what I think is going to be a massive benefit here. Because as good as the defense seemed, it should have been way better. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers completely neutered our defensive line. Still got pressures and sacks and everything. But that's a big part of it, too. You look at the stats and say, oh, man, Rashawn Gary's stats kind of went down a little bit, you know, his pressure rate. Well, yeah, he only got to the quarterback 10% of the time. What percentage of the time did he have no ability to get to him because there was no time to get to him? I have an answer for you. I've talked to you about PFF's true pass sets before, how they eliminate nonsense. One of the things that's nonsense is the ball getting out of the quarterback's hand too quickly. That's factored into this. So they drop that from the equation. Rashawn Gary only had three pressures on 32 attempts. That's less than 10%. That's not great. True pass sets, which means he wasn't double teamed. Quarterback didn't get the ball out of his hand immediately. And a bunch of other things. I forget exactly what they are. Designed quarterback rollouts, which I doubt they're doing a lot of that with Tom Brady. Do you know how many actually actual pass rush attempts he had? 15 out of 32. Less than half. Three pressures, 15 attempts. Kenny Clark, three pressures on 40 attempts. Unless you look at true pass sets, then it's three pressures on 16 attempts. Rashawn Gary had a 65 pass rush grade. That jumped up to a 74 pass rush grade when you include the true pass sets. Dean Lowry, one pressure on 19 attempts, I guess is okay. One pressure on seven attempts, sure as heck is better. And his grade jumped from a 69 to an 86.7 overall grade. Rashawn Gary's win percentage goes from 14.8% up to 27.3%. Dean Lowry goes from 12.5% up to 50%. Let's look at the Baltimore Ravens up against the New England Patriots. Because I want to know, was it less than 50% of your attempts are true pass sets? How many real opportunities did guys like Calais Campbell get? 35 attempts, 22 true pass sets. Justin Matabuike, out of 27, 21 were true pass sets. There is no funny business. It's straight-up man-to-man, hand-to-hand combat. You know who's real good at that? The Green Bay Packers are. You do not want to go toe-to-toe with Kenny Clark right now. I'm begging you, Bill Belichick. Brian Hoyer seems like a good dude. He married his high school sweetheart. He has two kids. He's on the verge of retirement. Any year now, he's going to hang it up. He's 36 years old. Do not... Try to play big man football against Kenny Clark. Do not leave your center on an island against Kenny Clark. Do not go man-to-man with Rashawn Gary and Preston Smith. 
Hoyer won't make it home, but that's what they do. I mean, do you really want to double, nearly double the amount of opportunities that these guys are going to get? And by the way, not all true pass sets are the same. There's, there's a cutoff, and then everything after that counts, talking about time to throw. So let's say they cut it off at, I don't know, two seconds. If it's under two seconds, then it doesn't count. Okay, so if it's 2.1 seconds for Tom Brady to get out of his hand, it's a lot harder to get it there than if Mac Jones holds it for 2.95 seconds, right? So not only are they getting more opportunities, they're likely going to have a higher percentage on those opportunities. And so I, I think in this game, it's very simple. The Packers need to understand that the run defense hasn't necessarily been the most premier in the NFL. And obviously, you want to improve that. You want to be better at it. You want to be dominant at it. But there needs to be a mentality and an understanding for the Green Bay Packers that if you want to go ahead and run the ball, and that's how you want to win games, by refusing to put the ball in your quarterback's hands, do that. Go ahead and do that. Very hard to win in the NFL that way, to consistently pick up first downs running the ball. It's why Aaron Rodgers and the Packers are so obsessed with throwing and and getting the big plays, as, as annoyed as we get with it. Why don't you just run it if it's working? Why do you keep trying to throw the ball 20 yards down the field if they won't let you do it? Because the numbers say, if you can't throw the ball deep down the field, you can't win. So the Patriots are in a tough spot. Run away from the Packers, like the Buccaneers did. Hide. Protect your quarterback. Try to get the ball out in 1.14 seconds. Basically glorified shovel passes with a heavy dose of running the ball. And see how that works out for you. Or you can keep running your system, which admittedly was great when you had Tom Brady. Hey, Giselle, does Tom Brady know you're cheating on him with Forrest Whitaker? Anyways, the, the point of this, the point of this, is that everything I said about last week in terms of Tampa just is the kind of team that's hard to play. The way that they play football, I, sh- I shouldn't phrase it, the, the way that they play football doesn't really jive with what we do. At least insofar as how their offense operates. And what our defense does, I like our chances. Now, granted, they are a run-heavy team, and they are successful at running the ball. But the point is, Tampa Bay, who passes a lot, and and on its face, you look at it and say, hey, they're the number one passing team in football. It's what they do. 66% of the time they're throwing in Tampa Bay, 54% of the time they're throwing in New England. You'd say Tampa Bay would be the much better matchup because you want to be able to tee off on the guy that you know is going to throw. But again... They do it in such a way to neutralize what we do. So there's going to be less opportunities to tee off on Mac Jones, maybe. That wasn't the case last week when Tampa Bay just said, forget this nonsense, we're running the ball. But when they throw, there's going to be a much higher success rate for our defensive line that has just been absolutely losing their mind. And by the way, very excited to see the uptick in Devontae Wyatt's snaps, which I think might happen. I'm not talking 42 snaps this week. You know, if Kenny got 40, Dean got 19, and Devontae got 5, you know, maybe uh, he pumped those numbers up a little bit. Did you see the rep that I put on Twitter? Sitting there watching the guy like, I don't know, I don't see anything special. Granted, it's taken me forever to find when he actually gets on the field. And then I found it. In all of its glory and splendor. The guy goes one-on-one with the center, grabs him by the chest, throws him into the stands, and charges toward Tom Brady. Again, would have been a comp- just absolute annihilation if Tom didn't get the ball out of his hand in two seconds. But with Jaron Reed having somewhat of a better day, not great, by the way, but, you know, somewhat better. Kenny being about as good as he's ever been in his entire NFL career. Rashawn going at an all-time clip. Kingsley sort of starting to emerge a little bit. 
And now Devontae Wyatt has kind of figured a couple things out. Guy that has kind of done nothing for two weeks had two semi-impressive pass rush reps out of five. That isn't to mention Quay is kind of getting into a groove and making plays on the field, like punching the ball out when he goes to make a tackle. And the DB's playing good. The safety's getting a little better every week. Maybe not Savage so much, but Amos is, you know, kind of getting back into his into his stride. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Uh, I tell you what. As you may have noticed, it's a little late in the next day. That's because everything you heard like five seconds ago was yesterday. This is this is now today. Something came up, couldn't finish, got to do it today. Anyways, let's take a break because I'm kind of starting fresh here. It's hard to complete my train of thought considering that was yesterday's train of thought. Patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. New day still weird. Thanks again to the September crew. Robert, Brian, Vicky, Tommy, Mr. Motorcycle, and Char. Really appreciate your support and everybody else's that has supported me over the days, months, and years. If you'd like to be a part of that, patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. Also, really appreciate it if you consider supporting Fertile Ground Ranch Discipleship Ministry. Check them check them out. Check them out. Mario. FertileGroundRanch.org. You can find links pinned to the top of my Twitter as well as the top of the Packin' a Podcast Facebook group. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing. But they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. 
Learn more at marines.com. So anyways, um, considering it's a new day and I uh, was not watching the game until, you know, after whatever. Tua, it's quite a situation there. I didn't realize, and I'm guessing a lot of people that are pretending they did, didn't realize that he was concussed on Sunday. Never saw that, didn't know anything about it. I'll tell you what, I even as a complete cynic, I'm shocked that this was allowed to happen. Because even the whole the NFL doesn't actually care thing, that that doesn't make any sense. Same with the NFLPA and all that. I don't understand anybody's motivation to make Tua play. Even in the most people are selfish, evil human beings, selfish, evil motivation would keep Tua off the field. Miami's selfish motivation, if we're again, this is just assuming we're we're gonna pretend everybody's just evil, disgusting human beings, which Probably isn't entirely untrue, but just for the sake of argument. Miami is risking losing Tua forever. The NFLPA has nothing to gain by not protecting Tua. They, they don't have to do anything. They don't earn anything. It's the benefit of being a union. You don't have to care about anything. You just have to constantly defend your guys no matter what. It doesn't matter if it hurts the NFL. What do you care? It's not your priority. I want my guys to be safe. I want them to be healthy. I want them to make a bunch of money. So there's no... There's no horrible motivation where the NFLPA is like, oh man, we should probably make this guy play. It doesn't exist. And as for the NFL, the NFL started this whole like concussion thing. And it's not just fake like a lot of the other fake stuff they do where it's all just for show, like stop hate, end racism. That's all just empty nonsense that they don't care about, trying to score points. They got sued for like $600 trillion because of this. Selfish motivation is to make sure nothing like that ever happens again. I don't know how, but this was somehow just the most egregious oversight in the history of NFL University. I don't know, man. Just leave me alone. Because I know it's like fun to make everybody into the bad guys, and and there's multiple ways to be bad guys, but we want to make it out to be like, this was some kind of horrible collusion to make him play when they knew. I mean, you, you could say that with the Dolphins if you wanted to. It's just It would just be a stupid decision where the short-term benefit outweighs the long-term risk. Well, he probably won't get hit in the head in a football game. Come on. Again, for me, it's just what makes the most sense. And it doesn't make any sense that anybody would actually risk this, especially since when you talk about We've talked about this before. NFL team doctors, they're... they're Sort of their own entity. It's not to say they can't be influenced, but you're hired the same thing as the union. You're hired to protect the players. You are not supposed to have any vested interest in the team's success. Again, you probably do, but that's not your job. If the team comes to you and they're like, hey, man, we're 3-0. and We really need to win this game. Tell me some good news. You're, the correct response is, I don't know anything about that. I don't even know how many games you played. I, I couldn't care less. All I know is I've got a patient that very clearly had head trauma and will not be playing for X amount of time until his brain is 100% healed because he can die. I understand there's like tough guy stuff and I'm all for it. You know, you, you, you bang up your knee and you fight through the pain or whatever. Nice. Love it. Respect it. Put a Band-Aid on it. Rub some dirt on it. Rub some Robitussin on it. Go to work, right? Yeah. Hardcore man stuff. This isn't man stuff. You're not helping anybody if you're dead. Now, last I heard, he was doing okay. He's doing great. He's going to be in the facility soon. I'm assuming it's not with the intention of suiting up. 
But yeah, that's it's just a it's a wild situation. I mean, I, I guess my question is, did they actually believe it was a back injury? I can't imagine they did, but at the same time, I don't I, What makes the most sense? I don't know, because none of this makes any sense. Anyways, I'm sure you've heard enough about that. I just wanted to give my, my two cents, I guess. So I want to mention something, because it dawned on me. We've been doing a lot of uh, pumping up Mr. Romeo Dobbs. And, and granted, it's probably a little bit too much pumping up. Pump up the jam. Pump it up. <laughs> The jam, pump it up while your feet are stumping. And the jam is pumping. Look ahead, the crowd is jumping. I never realized how bad that song was. I mean, it's 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 a banger, but she is she is not good at stuff. It sounds like somebody like got a you know, got a beat together and then went and got like their drunk aunt to just like throw some lyrics on it, you know? I don't know. Just I was surprised. Haven't heard it in a while. Still a good song. I like it. It's just a terrible song. Um, Talking about, oh, Romeo Dobbs, Pump Up the Jam. We're maybe getting a little too hyped on a small sample size. However, we're also kind of underselling the guy a little bit. First of all, there were 28 wide receivers that were drafted. Only 18 of them have taken a single snap, right? So there's a sizable portion of guys that were drafted. We just assume that, well, everybody's drafted and kind of just does a slow... No. I mean, we're, we're not far from half just not playing, period. But beyond that, how many guys beyond the first two rounds are really contributing in any major way? I mean, if you look at the top producers, Chris Olave, pick 11 overall, Drake London, pick 8 overall, Garrett Wilson, pick 10 overall. The three top producers in the NFL right now who have basically been number one wide receivers on their team for three weeks we're all more or less top 10 picks. Alave was 11. Number four in terms of yards is Romeo Dobbs. But after that, you have Traylon Burks, first round pick. After that, Jahan Dotson, first round pick. After that, you have Kyle Phillips, who's a fifth round pick, which is great for him. The problem is he had 66 yards in week one. That's pretty much all his yards. Then he had five week two and none in week three. So I don't think he continues this trajectory. Then you have George Pickens with 65 yards, second round pick. Then you have Alec Pierce with 61 yards, second round pick. Then Christian Watson with 43 yards, second round pick. Then you have Sky Moore with 30 yards. We're all the way down to 30. Sky Moore, second round pick. Then we go all the way down to Dennis Houston, who's an undrafted free agent, who again, his only yards, and we're talking 16 at this point, we're all the way down to 16, came in week one. Two receptions, 16 yards, hasn't had a catch since. Hasn't even had a target. He had one, I guess, week two. Nothing after that. David Bell was a third-round pick, so that's next. But again, we're all the way down to 12 receptions. And he played three games. Sorry, 12 yards, not 12 receptions. One target, six receptions the last two weeks. Then you got Wandale Robinson. He was a second-round pick. He was kind of an early second-round pick, actually. He has five yards. He was only played in one game. But then Jalen Tolbert, who was uh, the first... Oh, no, Valus Jones was the first third-round pick. He hasn't played. Then Jalen Tolbert, third-round pick, has four yards so far. After that, you have Montrell Washington. He's played, but has only one target and zero yards. He was a fifth-round pick. The only other two that have played, they've both played in two games. They've both been, or excuse me, one played in one game, one played in two games, but both of them, two targets, zero receptions. And that's fifth-round pick Khalil Shakir and third-round pick Danny Gray. There seems to be a massive outlier here, doesn't there? It's very obviously Romeo Dobbs. The only guys who have really done anything 
are Jahan Dotson, Traylon Burks, Romeo Dobbs, Garrett Wilson, Drake London, and Chris Olave. Five first-round picks. In fact, all the first-round picks are producing, with the exception of Jamison Williams, who's been injured this whole time. I'm sure he'll get right back on track with the Lions, who suddenly found an offense. But all five first-round picks are the only people that have cracked 100 yards, with the exception of one guy who snuck in, who is a fourth-round pick. Do you know how many guys got picked before him? Everybody I mentioned, but also John Mechie. Right, so second round, you had Christian Watson, Wandale Robinson. Christian's been injured a lot. John Mechie, Tyquan Thornton, who we haven't talked about. George Pickens, who hasn't done Jack. Alec Pierce, Sky Moore, Valus Jones, Jalen Tolbert, da- David Bell, Danny Gray, Eric Ezukanma, then Romeo Dobbs. I mean, he's sandwiched in between Eric Ezukanma and Calvin Austin. You know how many games those guys have played? I don't know if they're injured or what, but the, the answer is zero. And the Packers do this a lot. It's, it's kind of the same situation we had, I mean, slightly different, hopefully, but similar situation we had with uh, MVS. Look at MVS and say, he's not that good. It's like, okay, but compare him to everybody else. And he is in pretty rare company. Do you know how many fourth round picks in their rookie year had as many receptions as he's had? In NFL history, seven. You know how many after 1976? Three. Marquez Colston had 15 receptions in 2006. Tajay Sharp had 14 receptions in 2016, and Romeo Dobbs in 2022. You can do similar things with yards, just not quite to the same degree. Now, that's sort of the negative side of this, however. When you go down the list and look at those players who have been somewhat similar, it isn't necessarily a list of the greatest wide receivers in NFL history. And this is where the we're also overhyping him thing comes from. And maybe we're not, I don't know. If you look at yards... For rookie picks that are fourth round or later, should have specified or later before Tajay Sharp. Um, well, I don't remember where he's drafted. Doesn't matter. Romeo ranks 32nd. If we look at since 2000, because we don't know a lot of the names, he's seventh, which is great because he's ahead of guys that are pretty solid: Darnell Mooney, Kenny Stills, Hunter Renfro. He's in very similar company to guys like Mike Williams, um, Marquez Colston. But again, not everybody's great. The guy that's closest to him in terms of production and yards in in the first three weeks of the season as a rookie receiver, Chauncey Stuckey. He ended the year with 359 yards. His best year ever, and he, he played for multiple different teams, but his best year was 359 yards and three touchdowns. In fact, I would say most of the guys on this list were not like thousand yard receivers. Colston obviously was, but he's number one on this list in terms of yards through three. He cracked 200 yards already by now. Although, again, if we had gotten Romeo Dobbs started a little bit earlier, he probably wouldn't have too. But number two on the list is Darius Moore. And as a rookie with uh, Oakland, 618 yards, five touchdowns. The next year was his best year at 741 yards, seven touchdowns, and it was all down from there. And he was pretty much done after the first four years. So here's, here's what I'll say. He was a fifth-round pick, by the way. Not everybody that was a mid-to-late-round pick that has had the early success that Romeo has had, which is unusual. Again, I've I've showed you, it's not usually what mid-to-late-round guys are doing at this point. Actually, usually they just kind of bust out from the start. But just because they're, they're having that level of success certainly doesn't mean that they're going to be a very good wide receiver. However, it is the only sign that he is going to be a good wide receiver, right? So if you look at the list, all the pretty solid wide receivers that are mid to late round. They're probably on this list. You know, Amon Ra, Tyreek Hill. I mean, they're a little further down the list, but they're on the list. Hunter Renfro, Darnell Mooney, Kenny Stills. I I went down the list. These guys are here. 
So it's a good sign, but it's not an all-telling sign. It's Let's just call it the first hurdle in a mid-round pick actually becoming a really good wide receiver is early production. Because if he went through this year and redshirted and all that, his really low odds, which were already really low odds of becoming a really good wide receiver, because fourth-round picks just don't generally ever become good wide receivers, would drop even further. But I at least wanted to give him his due because, you know, we, we talk about the receivers as though they're all kind of on an equal plane. Like, yeah, Romeo's good, but he's actually fourth in yard. Okay, um, remove just first-round picks from the equation and guys that are actually contributing. So we can remove guys like Kyle Phillips, who for some reason played week one, had somewhat of a contribution, and is probably never going to touch an NFL football again. It's Romeo Dobbs is number one with 137 yards and a touchdown. Number two would be Alec Pierce with three receptions for 61 yards and no touchdowns. And no, that's not what we want to do. We don't want to do this forever because eventually, you know, if you want to be a good wide receiver, not a good wide receiver for a fourth round pick. But if you're Brian Gutekunst, yeah, I would be taking that exact victory lap. Oh, your your top 10 pick got you uh, 200 yards, two touchdowns. I got 137 and a touchdown out of a fourth round pick. But you know, that's cool. You use a top 10 pick on a wide receiver. Wow. Congratulations on that. I don't have my conversion chart or anything. I'm sure I'm doing better than you, but uh, wow. You know, that's great. That's great. Great work. Could have got a you know quarterback, pass rusher, offensive tackle, corner, D-tackle, you know, rush the passer. Pretty important stuff. But no, wide receivers. Oh, that's great. Great job. Really, really inspiring. Anyways, um, want to look at the Green Bay Packers, Patriots, betting situation here um, because it's pretty interesting. I'm not exactly sure what's motivating this. I'm guessing it's the Mac Jones injury, which is funny, but the Green Bay Packers were uh, six-point favorites as of 8.15 a.m. 9.24, so like a week ago, and 25. Well, 24 for the, the market. PFF's a little slow. But the very next day, the market dropped to 8.5-point favorites for the Packers. At the, I guess, highest, lowest, whatever you want to say, the Packers were 11-point favorites. That's slowly been coming back up. I'm not exactly sure how these things happen. I'm guessing it's just based on how the betting is going and people are putting massive amount of bets on uh, Patriots or whatever. I don't know. But it came back up and has now been settled for, I don't know, quite a long time, two days, three days, whatever, considering the volatility it did have. We're sitting pretty steady at 9.5-point favorites. PFF. Um, has basically been following this exactly, but just with a little bit more favoritism toward the Patriots, they have us at 8.7 point favorites, which I'll be honest, considering how they track the market exactly, it seems like they're just saying, uh, we're going to say exactly whatever the market says, but lean a little bit heavier toward the Patriots, which really doesn't make any sense to me, but it doesn't matter. I'm sure I don't have to go through this all with you. We've been through this before. One of the things that the Packers don't do, first of all, is lose at home. Number two is lose when they're major favorites. I believe the point at which they've never lost is six points. I think. I'm not going to look it up again because I feel like I do this every other week. Off the top of my head, six-point favorites, the Packers don't lose. At home, the Packers very rarely lose. There's really nothing about this game so far, and we'll do a little bit more of a divey dive tomorrow. You know what's really weird? I looked at um, some statistics I gave you that said they were a very run oriented team. PFF says, and I can look this up very easily, but they said 38.6% of their plays are run plays, 61.4% are pass plays, which would, which would mean that they're extremely pass heavy. Um, I'm going to look it up real quick and get an official tally, do my own math. 
because somebody's way off unless I'm just reading this wrong. Pass the ball 97 times, run the ball 81 times. Doesn't feel like a 60-40 split to me. It's not. 54%. So the other thing was right. PFF, either I'm reading this wrong or they're just stupid. I don't know. The other funny thing about this game, which is getting to be kind of depressing because, you know, I know the offense is kind of coming along and we're slowly getting there and Tampa Bay's got a good defense and all that, but it's getting to be kind of sad that our offense is seen as what it has been, which is one of the worst offenses in football. I think we rank like 27th. But the over-under for this game is 40 and a half. If the score was 20 to 21, it would be over. Now, granted, you could look at this and say, well, they're only expecting the Patriots probably to get like 10 points. Yeah, maybe. Probably not, though. Sounds like they're expecting something along the lines of like a 16 to 24 game. 16, 25, I don't know. Still not super great for our offense. (laughs) I guess it's fine. I would take it. Patriots have a pretty good defense. It's still sad. I think that's what we need, though. Because I'll tell you what, it, it is a little annoying when Bears fans can throw that back in our face. Like, yeah, well, we still have a better offense than you. It's like, no, you don't. Oh, really? Who scored more points? Well, that, you know, you didn't play the Bucks. You played the Texans, okay? All right, we fell apart week one. We played Tampa week three. And then we scored points against you, so shut up. So I think, you know, good Patriots defense or not, that needs to be kind of a, a thing that happens. And honestly, I think it happens if we kind of feature our, our rookies more. And I know I'm sounding like a stupid fan with that, but I think it's real. There's benefit to Alan Lazard. There is benefit to Randall Cobb. We saw some of that. The reliance, the trust in certain situations, that's fine. But you can't build an entire game plan around neglecting the most electric parts of your offense. I am, I am stunned by the speed of Romeo Dobbs. That pass where it looked like he was going to catch it and go right out of bounds and he somehow was able to turn it upfield and then fly. He went from zero to 60 in no time and picked up like almost 10 yards. That was shocking to me. Every time I see that replay, it's like, what the heck is that? I don't understand. I've never seen anything like that. It seems impossible because you've seen that play a thousand times and you know he kind of is able to turn it upfield and maybe get a yard or two before he goes out of bounds. We've all seen that play a thousand times. He doesn't turn up the field and get 10 yards, especially with the defender there. You know, he maybe he kind of is able to turn it upfield and, you know, turn his momentum a little bit, but he's going to get pushed out of bounds. Nope, too fast. And he's the slower of the two rookies. I think the point is, if, if you want to kind of play this slow, slug it out, you know, beat a team 20 to 16 type of game, stick with what you're doing. Run the ball, throw to the receivers, throw to Lazard and Cobb. If you want to be the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs and have, you know, maybe you don't this week, but beat teams, you know, not every week, but occasionally 41 to 10, you got to get the rookies involved. That's all there is to it. The Buffalo Bills needed a Stephon Diggs on their team. Kansas City Chiefs have had, you know, Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill for a long time. I know Tyreek's gone. I get that. But still, you got to have these just dynamic weapons. And we have them. And I understand that there's limitations there and there's issues there. But look what happened when we pushed on Romeo Dobbs a little bit. It rewarded tenfold. Trust a little bit. Be willing to accept failure. You know, if Christian Watson drops a pass, Okay, oh well, move on, next play. He's still as as involved as we planned he would be. But man, just just having the weapon of Romeo Dobbs, and then if we decide to lean on Christian, assuming he plays this week, and and how much that can really impact things. And that doesn't even include the fact that we're still going to lean heavily on Aaron Aaron Jones, on A.J. Dillon, on Lazard, on Cobb, and whatever we decide to do with the tight ends, which up to this point has been nothing, which I, I think I'm fine with. Tunyon, I, I've said before, I thought he looked pathetic in that last game. That was, that was just weird. 
Uh, Tyler Davis, I thought, was, <laughs> was better than Tunyon. I mean, he caught that one pass and took off like a rock. Tunyon catches the pass, and he just looks like he doesn't want to get hit. Like, uh, I don't know. Somebody push me out of bounds. I don't want to run. I don't know. But, you know, there's something there. Apparently, there's nothing with um, DeGuara. I, I guess we've just decided to move on, which makes me sad, but well, that's fine, I guess. I think it makes me sad because there's not a better option. It's not like, well, we're obviously not going to throw to him because we have Travis Kelsey on the team because we have Mark Andrews. No, it's why aren't we doing it? Well, because of Tyler Davis. Oh, come on, man. Really? Okay. Well, it's because we have this elite tight end called Robert Tunyon. Oh, yeah, okay. You got it, bud. But the point is, the sooner we get to that point, the better, because it has to be a thing. And the Packers know it has to be a thing. And I think we learned that they probably waited a little bit too long with Romeo Dobbs. They, they only got him this involved because they had to because of an injury. I think if they were fully healthy, Romeo Dobbs would still be that guy that gets, you know, half the amount of snaps. Because it would have been Sammy Watkins and Alan Lazard with that massive amount of snaps. And, and Romeo would have been getting half the amount of snaps like he has this entire time. So, you know, if, if those two guys had 40 some odd snaps, Romeo would have been sitting at 20. But an injury forced him to the forefront. And because he was open so much, he got the ball a ton on top of the times that they schemed him. And now they're sitting there going, oh, wow, maybe we should get him. Well, yeah, gee. So what I'm saying is keep doing that and then do it to Christian and not just on end arounds or jet sweeps or whatever. It doesn't matter. Same thing, basically. And I think we have a manageable schedule coming up to be able to, you know, when you go up against Tampa, there's fear in trying to bring up a guy like Romeo and Christian. If you don't have to, you're probably not going to because you don't want their... It, it needs to be a really clean game. And, and yeah, that's true every week, and that's true against Bill Belichick, and we can find reasons why that's true all the way down the line. But if you have to do it, let's start pushing now. Now is that stretch. Let's, let's get prepared now because Buffalo is coming, and that's, that's the point at which we kind of need to be up to full steam. Not that that's a make-or-break game necessarily, assuming we don't wit- lose a bunch of games. And again, there's every reason to believe that this is a, a dynamic and lethal offense. It just needs to be dynamic and lethal in very different ways than it used to be, but it can be. We just got to lean into it. And in my opinion, the offensive line needs to do a better job, but embrace the rookies. Don't run away from your running backs. Pick your spots with Lazard and Cobb. Be all right. Anyways, I'm going to leave it at that for today. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Goodbye. Goodbye.